Hello and welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. This is episode number 227, and I am Ross. And I continue to be Gordon. Hey Gordon, it's great to see you again. This time I thought we could tackle the subject of using fill lighting when it matters the most. Oh, I know this one. Fill is most effective and often most important in direct light. Like on a sunny day. Absolutely. Find a bright sunny day and most folks will think it's perfect for taking pictures. Whereas a professional will yearn for the soft light that comes right after a gentle rain. Well, you're waxing poetic, which I've never heard before. But anyways, well, that's understandable. Under bright sign. Under bright sign, under bright sun. The colors pop and things look really vibrant. But I'm going out on a limb here and saying that subjects to the human eye and all its connections and interpretations look wonderful. But we have to accept that the eye with its associated interplay will see exactly what it wants to see and suppresses the rest. The camera, on the other hand, doesn't really care and will show every shadow or highlight to provide the photographer with a perfectly horrible image. Well, you're right about that. And that's one of the reasons that law enforcement is always cautious with witness testimony. Mm -hmm. This is going to happen. But as you said, with that direct light, we're also going to run into harsh shadows. And we may also see an increase in texture. Particularly in the, if the light is striking the subject at an angle. And that may work f just fine for some things. But it's going to be less than optimal for people photos. Unless, of course, you're trying to make them look like a crag on the side of a Scottish mountain. Oh, that's Scottish crag. Yes. Yes, well... Doing that can also get you badly bruised. So, in the interest of listener time, what do you recommend to address this? Wait for soft light? But I'm going to assume that the simple action of moving to an area of shade, taking the subject with you, is not feasible for some reason. Well, that would certainly be cheap and an easy way out. Too often, it's just not practical. So, what then? Well, let's start cheap. Put the bright light behind the subject. Now, since you can't move the sun, but you can move the subject, that's not so hard. This does mean that you, as the photographer, might be, and probably are, squinting. But most importantly, the subject isn't squinting. This is the cue to you that you have the light in the right place. Now, take a spot meter reading off your subject and use that reading off something that will render in the middle of your exposure range, what we would refer to as middle gray. And a quick note, human skin isn't middle gray. It's actually, a, in a light-skinned person, it's actually about a stop and a half too bright, and a darker-skinned person, it's about a stop too dark. Okay, but won't that blow out the background? I certainly hope so. 
no decent photograph creates confusion as to the subject. So if you're photographing a subject, everything else, by definition, is ancillary. At best, those things provide context. But at worst, they create confusion. So step a bit closer and crop in. Or don't move, but use a narrower angle of view in your camera. And then do everything possible to get it right in the camera. Well, I do this. And if done well, you get a really nice fringe of brightness around your subject that sets it off and directs the viewer right to the subject. The halo effect that you sometimes get is just beautiful. And getting it right as possible in camera is a hallmark of success for certain. So you have just described something that's absolutely beautifully simplistic. Turn the subject around, get in close for crop, uh, tight crop, take a spot meter reading, take the image. Perfect. But what if that cannot be done? What then? There are always multiple options in this kind of scenario, but they're all going to require some extra gear. My personal choice is always fill flash. Well, that's not surprising in the least, at least not to me. But what method do you use in this scenario? Well, my goal is to get the fill light opposite to the source of the primary light. So I like to put the camera on a tripod and I've come to favor a remote application on my smartphone or a tablet that shows me what the camera is seeing. And then I move physically with my fill flash so I am in direct opposition to the light source and I actually point my flash at the subject and at the light. And as a consequence, I'm able to provide fill. Think about this example. You're photographing a person and the light is coming in from his or her right. Fair enough. Then I'm going to position myself and my fill flash to the left. So I'm pointing my flash actually in the direction that the source light is coming from. It's actually really simple once you try it. So, let's see, you use the remote app to trip the shutter. And if you're putting yourself in the position that you mentioned, uh, I'm assuming you're trying to establish some kind of a ratio between the bright side and the dark side, so to speak. So, in that scenario, how do you handle the flash exposure? Well, your assertion is correct. I like to use the camera app to trip the shutter because they can. But that doesn't mean I couldn't use a traditional cable release or wireless release. I just like the convenience of having the app. For the flash, I'll typically set it to TTL mode. And I'm going to take the first shot using zero flash exposure compensation. This gives me a quick reference image, and it's going to tell me whether I need more flash or less flash in order to achieve the look that I find most pleasing. Remember, it's not about the numbers, it's about whether you like what the image looks like. Then I'm going to use the remote to adjust the flash exposure compensation, or go to the camera and do so, and then go back with the flash where I want to be and make another image. I can usually get to what I hope for in two test shots, but if it takes four, so it goes. If I find myself constrained for time, 
I'll try to get to the shot location early and do some pre-tests so I have a pretty good idea where to be from an exposure perspective. Obviously, the source light can't change a lot between the time I pre-test and the time I make the image, but in most cases it works out really, really well. Okay, but that's you and your love affair with the flash. What about people who don't have a flash, uh, are not comfortable with flash, or those who actually are just physically afraid to use it? Well, I confess that I don't understand the fear thing. And we've already established on many episodes that a decent TTL flash is not super expensive. And we've recommended an excellent one, the Godox TT685 Model 2, on numerous occasions. Now, of course, you have to learn to use it, but learning flash is not hard. But as with anything, some proper practice makes it simple. But let's go ahead with the premise of, yeah, no flash allowed. All right. So what then? Well, what I need to do is manipulate the quality of the light. I have very harsh light, and so I have to do some manipulation to make it softer. I can't change its direction, nor do I want to, and I absolutely do not want to alter its color. So, I will go with a silver reflector. Why silver? Silver reflects more efficiently than white. It doesn't add any coloration to the light, and you can see the effect in real time. But many internet sites and some instructors say go ahead and use a gold reflector or a gold and silver reflector. I've never heard you say that. Why not? Silver is color neutral. Gold plainly isn't. I don't like the false warming or the frequent jaundice look that gold reflectors bring. I think it's horrible looking and would never encourage the use of a gold reflector for anything. Well, at least it's good to see you don't have any strong opinions about that. But how big a reflector are we going to need for this? Well, the size of the reflector and the manipulation of it are always a challenge because the bigger the reflector, the more it wants to turn into a sail if there's any kind of wind. That said, I want as large a reflector as I need for the size of my subject. I know that I'm going to need to bring that reflector in pretty close. In order to get the softest light, then I'm going to need a bigger reflector. So. If I'm doing a headshot, I need a reflector that's a bit bigger than the head. If I'm doing a full body shot, well, that tells us how big a reflector I'm going to need. If you're working on your own using a camera remote, is there a reflector that you really like? I do. I find the last light collapsible reflectors that are triangular shaped and have big rubber grips to be the ones that I use the most. Like many of us, I've been to the place where you end up with more reflectors than you actually ever use. <laughs> Maybe some people don't get there. Now, there are, of course, clones of the last light ones, and each person should choose what serves him or her best. The big round reflectors that come with an arm and a stand are also good, but if you go that route, be sure to get a sandbag to hold the stand in place, otherwise it's going to flop around and it might hit somebody possibly your subject. As one of our camera club people just mentioned in the last post, can you go with a smaller reflector? Well, you can use whatever you want, 
but I've found through practical experience that I want the reflector to be up to three times larger than my subject for greatest effectiveness. I try for two times, but the bigger is the better. Okay. And uh, I understand that's a fairly inexpensive option. But what if you have to work where you cannot use a reflector or there just isn't one big enough to do the job? Well, at this point, I'm going to go to flash, perhaps multiple flash heads, but there's another option, although it requires very heavy light stands and a couple of hired hands to keep things steady, and that is called a scrim. Explain, please. A scrim is a large piece of fabric, typically 4 by 6 feet or 6 by 8 feet, that is mounted to a collapsible but sturdy frame. That frame is then attached to heavy-duty stands, like a C-stand, and you place the scrim between the light source and the subject. It then causes the light to be spread out because it's far closer to the subject than the primary light source. A good scrim with solid stands and the helpers can even go up and over the subject if the light is directly pointing downward. A truly horrible look. Don't kid yourself, scrims are wonderful, but they're never a one or even two person thing. Always at least three people counting the photographer. I own scrims from Last Light and the Scrim Gym. Both do an excellent job. The scrims are white because they are allowing the light to pass through and they have no impact whatsoever on color. Yeah, I think I can see why you favor flash so much. It seems to be the easiest to work with overall and certainly the most portable. A decent reflector, probably not a bad thing to own. But a scrim, well, that does sound like overkill for most situations. And unusable safely without helpers. Do you think that pretty much thumbs it up and maybe covers things for this episode? I think it's a darn good start. Thanks to all of our listeners. If you'd like to support the channel, you can do so with a donation by clicking support the channel on the main page at thephotovideoguide.ca. If you shop at BNH Photo Video, please use the link on the main page as it pays a small commission here and doesn't cost you anything. Please do submit a comment or send in a question. I read and respond to all. On behalf of the channel, we wish you peace and good health. I'm Ross. I'm Gordon. And we will speak to you again soon.